0: And for those of you that I have not yet met, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. And for those of you watching online, uh, welcome. I'm glad that we have the uh, capabilities to tune you in from wherever you're at. And and I know we're still winding down. Uh, I know it's still summer. Uh, And for those of you that will be watching this uh, this week, I hope that you have traveled and created memories and laughed and, and just been with your people enjoying the last bit of summer that we have. Um, so to this morning, we will be uh, finishing up our series in First Peter and First Peter chapter 5. And let me just read a few verses to you. We'll be out of chapter 5, verse uh, 8 and 9, and here is what the word of the Lord says. It says, uh, discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. We thank you that you love us, you forgive us, you walk with us. You protect us from uh, Satan and Satan's lies and deception. Um, We thank you that you bring people around us to walk with us, uh, to show us uh, even more clear your ways. And, And God, may we be that kind of people too, that with our lives, with our words, with our actions, we would also show the world and the people around us that you are Lord. Of our lives. In your name we pray, <clears throat> amen and amen. Uh, this might be a silly question, but anybody here enjoy listening and learning from podcasts, right? So this is, you know, for, for many of us, I myself uh, really enjoy podcasts. And uh, just a few days ago, I listened to this podcast <clears throat> where this interviewer interviewed. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and and if you're familiar with who Mark Zuckerberg is, uh, he is the CEO, founder of Facebook, and now Instagram, and WhatsApp, and so many other things that I can't name. But this interviewer interviewed Mark Zuckerberg, and and this person was asking uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg a bunch of questions around technology, and community, and society. Uh, And and this person asked, and he had imagined this, that at some point, uh, technology, social media, even further, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, would eventually take over and become the normal way of how we socialize and how we are connected uh, with one another in all of our relationships. Uh, He asked about uh, this world Uh, where we can hang out uh, without leaving the comforts of our own home. And and to be honest to me, that sounds like a dream. Uh, A world where uh, it's beyond FaceTime or Zoom or anything that we experience today, but it's so advanced. It's this world that you can actually feel and, and see uh, somebody else, maybe through a hologram or whatever technology that there is, and it would almost emulate what we once saw in movies like The Matrix, like everything is happening in your brain, so this person is like, "Is this the place that you are taking us mr mark zuckerberg who who have, who have invented this social media platform where billions of people are on and, and how they stay connected and, and his, his response was really interesting and fascinating to me because. I would argue that he has an incentive to say, that's where we're going. That is a good thing. This is what the world should be like. Uh, But he doesn't. Zuckerberg's response to that question was simply, no, because the feeling of presence is pretty important. He says, the feeling of presence is pretty important. And then he says, we're not just brains in tanks. In other words, we need people in our lives is what he was saying. We're not machines. We're wired to feel a sense of connection and belonging and love and embrace with others. Now, whether Mark Zuckerberg knows this or not, i would submit to you, it's by way of design. It's by way of design. We were created to be in relationship with one another, not just any kind of relationship, but intimate relationships with one another. In Genesis chapter 2.25, when God had created Adam and Eve, he, God explains in one sentence what this intimacy should look like, and it simply says this in verse 25, Adam and his wife Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this, is go, this goes beyond what they were wearing or what they were not wearing. It was a metaphor, it was symbolic of how God created humanity to be. That we would be so intimate and so vulnerable with one another without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation, without fear of laughter or shame or guilt, that we could just be in relationship without fear, without shame, just being metaphorically naked, With one another. This is what it means to be in relationship exactly the way God intended it to be. But the reality is, we don't experience this in our own lives. We don't experience it ourselves. We don't give it away ourselves, maybe to a few people, because we live in a culture that says you don't need anybody. I mean, that is the culture, especially in this Western culture that we live in. We don't need anybody. In fact, to need somebody is a sign of weakness. In this recent Time Magazine article, uh, the writer says this, there is no advanced industrial democracy in the world more politically divided Or politically dysfunctional in the United States today? How did the world's most powerful country get to this point? And then the writer says, to paraphrase a great American author, it was slowly then suddenly. He was quoting Hemingway. And this writer explains that there are so many other countries that possess, like us here in the United States and the West, advanced technology, we're not the only ones that, has, that have this. Uh, we're not the only country in the world that has social media, wealth, pop culture. But we are, maybe not the only, but to the most extreme sense, have the most extreme division out of any other advanced industrial nation and world, uh, country in this world. And he would argue the biggest difference, the biggest difference is this, this rugged, attitude, this attitude of rugged individualism, where, again, asking for help is seen as weakness, where people around us are seen as competition, and we live under this myth of scarcity, where in order to be a winner, there must be a loser, and you have to pick. When I was growing up and, you know, even through high school, uh, I was involved in two sports and, and I played baseball and I wrestled. And I'll tell people this story that those were the sports I played and my, my friends and people around me would always ask, like, between the two sports, like, what was your favorite sport? Uh, and I would say, hands down, wrestling, and then they would ask why, and I would say, I, I prefer wrestling over baseball because baseball, you have to count on people. Like, it's a, it's a team sport. And, and if you are familiar with wrestling, technically it's a team sport, but, but let's be honest, it's like, hey, very individual at the same time. Uh, but I would say, you know what, I just didn't like depending on other people. I didn't like people depending on me. Whether I won or I lost, I wanted to be purely Because of my own efforts. And where did I get this from? Yes, it's part of my family, not asking for help. But it's just conditioning that many of us have experienced that asking for help is a sign of weakness. That working with others is hard. We should be able to do this alone by pulling ourselves up from the bootstraps. And furthermore, the myth of if you don't make it, it's because you didn't didn't try hard enough. Never mind the lack of resources, your family systems or where you were born and, and and you know all these resources that you may or may not have had or obstacles that came in your way, whether you liked it or not, whether it was your fault or not, never mind all of that. The myth perpetuates this idea that if you are not successful, it is purely your fault. And yes, there is a sense of responsibility that I want us to all take and I want us to understand that it also comes from this myth of this rugged individualism. And what is the result of this rugged individualism that we, many of us experience here in the West is loneliness and isolation, pride, knowing that you did it all yourself. On the other side, we live in this fear of scarcity that I have to make it, I have to win, I have to beat others, I have to defeat others in order for myself to be successful as if there's only space for one. Again, as a result uh, of this rugged individualism, not only is there loneliness and isolation and scarcity and pride, but there's a heightened sense of depression and anxiety and, and, and substance abuse and addiction, which all makes sense where there's this one MIT study That showed that uh, when we are lonely from a sense of our rugged individualism, whether we say it or not, many of us experience loneliness as a result. They discovered that loneliness in our lives triggers the same parts of our brain as when we were as when we are hungry and thirsty. What that means is that our bodies, our brains, we are wired to always be craving something, particularly relationships. And and when we are not in relationship, especially one where we can feel naked and unashamed, the relationships may go away, but the cravings don't. And so with those cravings lead to dysfunctional habits, again addictions, and destroying our own lives and our own souls. One psychology professor by the name of Bruce Alexander from Vancouver, he did an experiment in the 70s called the Rat Park. He put individual rats in different cages by themselves. And in these individual cages with these individual rats, there was two bottles. There was a bottle of water and a bottle of water that was mixed with morphine. And then separately, there was a cage with several rats with a little playground for the rats to socialize and interact with and also had water, a bottle of water and a bottle of water mixed with morphine. Now on this side with the rats by themselves, uh, they concluded that due to their loneliness and isolation, many of these rats got addicted to the morphine and many of them died. Almost 100% of the rats died. Chose the water with the morphine. They got high. They got they overdose, and again, many of them died. Now, on the other side, what the the psychologist called Rat Park, with all these different rats together, almost none of them chose the morphine water, and all of them chose the plain water. And uh, and there was a hundred percent of zero. Of the, there was zero overdoses in this side of the experiment. Now, what does that conclude? That being in intimate relationships means something. That A, that we're always craving it first and foremost, and we would, and when we don't find it, we find it in something else. But there's nothing better Again, as even Mark Zuckerberg understood, there's nothing better than the, than the power of presence and intimacy and relationships with others. So much so that they, even these rats felt like they didn't need this water mixed with morphine to get high, to, to be further isolated, to, to kind of drown their sorrows because they had the power of intimacy and community with one another. What else was fascinating is that even these rats who happened to be addicted to the water with morphine all got transferred over to the rat park and all of them recovered or was rehabilitated because of the community that they were plugged into. Now that says something about the power of aid, the way that we're wired, and the power of Being and doing life with others. Now, when we look into 1 Peter, Peter is dealing with a community that has been dispersed from Rome all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, due to the persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire, mainly Nero. And we talked about this last week, what that looked like. It was wretched. It was disgusting. It was horrid. Of what some of the Christians were experiencing because of their faith. And so many were discouraged, many were lonely because of their dispersion, and many of them were hopeless. I mean, imagine being kicked out of your homeland, and for them, they, all they knew was Rome. All they knew was, was this place that they grew up in, where they uh, learned, where they went to school, and because of this newfound belief in the resurrected Jesus, they were dispersed uh, due to persecution. And where, where they ended up, they were considered, again, still foreigners and outcasts. Again, for what they believed, where they were from, what language they spoke. And many of them, again, were experiencing utter loneliness and hopelessness and discouragement. And it was out of that backdrop that Peter writes his letter, First and Second Peter. And this is why he says, hey, you all Christians who have been dispersed, who are hopeless, who are lonely, who are living in isolation, who are outside of your community, whether it's by your fault or not. He says this, be alert. This is the NIV now. Be alert and sober-minded. Pay attention. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. In other words, pay attention. And he says with a definite article, the devil. So now uh, I don't have time to go over uh, demonology or eschatology, but oftentimes when the Bible refers to demons and Satan, it's this definition of uh, an accuser or an adversary. Like in Job, uh, it was this imagery of the courtroom, where there's someone uh, going, like an antagonist or like a, a, again, an adversary going against God. Now here, it's a bit different because there's a definite article, uh, in other words, like the, it's like the devil, And, and it's very rare that the Bible uses a definite article to speak of Satan or the devil, but here Peter does, which says that there simply is this, it's this notion that we live in a world that is far bigger than us that there is a spiritual realm and there is a, a, a divine and holy and spiritual battle between good and evil. And, and for me, uh, that is the way that I define what happened on Easter. There was a defeat of evil by the power of Jesus. And so what Peter is acknowledging is that there is a there is a powerful spiritual entity named the devil. And, and the devil, The devil has minions or demons, and I want us to get rid of this imagery where there's this person with a horn and a pitchfork and just tempting us to do really bad things. In fact, the devil works in very subtle and very minor and almost unnoticeable ways. That is actually the power of the evil one. And Peter acknowledges this, and he says, pay attention, the devil is roaring like a lion. Now, the lion was known as a symbol of great power. The lion inspired fear and terror. The lion, as Peter said, had devouring powers. But what's interesting is that Peter uses this word prowls. In other translations, it says on the move. So Peter says, be careful, pay attention, pay attention. Do not be misled. And many of us, we are often misled of what Satan is like or what the evil lies are like. Again, we, we imagine this person with a pitchfork or, or horns or whatever it is in this vivid way saying, you must do this bad thing. But Peter acknowledges that the devil works in different ways, in much subtler ways. And so he says, pay attention because if you, aren't paying attention, you might miss it. And he says the devil prowls, or, or in some translations uh, 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 is on the move. But this word prowl, or on the move, in the original Greek, in the original language, is this word peripateo. And, and peripateo literally means to walk. Or to walk slowly. So he's given this imagery that this lion, or that this that. The, that the devil is powerful, like a lion. Has the power to devour, to kill. and inspires fear and terror. But at the same time, the way that the devil works is very subtle. The devil walks. Not only just walks, but walks slowly, peripateo. Where sometimes we don't even notice it. This is the way that the devil works. For those of you that have been kind of walking with my journey the last, you know, several weeks, I was on sabbatical and I did this trip to the South and, and, I, and to go on this like civil rights pilgrimage through Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. And there was this one moment, this kind of a confession, I was in Atlanta and um, I felt like what I had to do since I was in the South was get fried chicken. Right? So I got fried chicken, and I got some, uh, some greens, and, and all the, the whole nine yards, and, and I was eating it, and it was delicious. All right? it, I, I loved it. But I don't know if you know this, and maybe it's here in Seattle too, but when you order something, especially in the South, I noticed it was like a pile of food. And for the first time in a long time, I had to get a to-go box, which I rarely, that rarely happens to me. So I got a to-go box. Take it to my rental car and I got to my hotel and then I I thought of something, okay, I don't have a fridge in this hotel, so if I bring this in, it's going to just smell. I don't want to leave it in the car because it's going to be the same thing. It's going to smell. And so I put it outside under the car outside and I said, okay, when I come back tomorrow, when I check out, I'm going to take it and I'm just going to find the garbage and I'm going to throw it away. right or compost it, for those of you that might be upset. Uh, I'm going to compost it somewhere uh, because I didn't want to deal with it right now. So they passed, I got into my car, and then I saw the the container. And I was in a rush. I had to get to my next spot, and I said, you know what? I might just leave it. I might just leave it. I'm looking around the parking garage, and there's trash everywhere. And, and, And there was this voice subtly saying, you're not doing anything bad. And I was almost having a conversation with myself, like, no, that's wrong. I need to pick it up. I need to throw it away. And, but then there's, a, no, it, it, just one time. You never do this, Prince. like, and you're in a hurry. You need to catch your next, next uh, appointment or uh, for a museum that I had. And if you look around, there's trash everywhere. Nobody will know. Nobody will tell the difference. You're not hurting anything.
1: And I was like, yeah, I'm right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I got into my car, and then I started driving off. This is your pastor, by the way. Started (laughs) driving off. And there's something that was in me. I got out of the gate, and there's something in me that said, turn back around. You were fed a lie. It is not okay. And I was like, yeah, no, totally, it's okay. Everyone was doing it. And I finally I was telling Maria. actually, I called her, and I was like, I felt like I was having an outer body experience where my body did a U-turn. I got back into the gate, and I grabbed it, and I finally threw it away. There was a trash, actually, next to the door. It was really lame of me to have left. But I repented and I changed my ways. But I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that was so subtle. That was so easy. And how many times in our lives are we deceived in such little and minute ways? That is the devil working and walking slowly in our lives. This is the way that the devil works. Slow and subtle ways of convincing us towards a way of destruction of our souls and our community and our relationships. Particularly in isolation, you don't need anybody. Maybe you're at work, you can cut cut a corner a little bit, get ahead, no one will know. It's only a little white lie, it's not bad. You can go on that website, no one will know. Hey, you earn that money. You don't have to be generous with others. That's, that's yours. You're, you actually are superior to that person. And before you know it, those little white lies, that little cutting of corners, that website that you've gone to that no one else might know, that, that idea of superiority can lead us into a very dark place. You see, this is how the serpent works. Again, another illustration of how the devil works. When God said, Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent said, Did God really say that? Did God really say you shouldn't eat that? Come on, Adam. Come on, Eve. Don't be fooled. And even this lie, like, God just doesn't want to be like, God doesn't want you to have the same power as God. But if you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened. The serpent says, Surely you won't die when you eat that fruit. Come on, that's ridiculous. Just take a bite, you won't die. And you see, this is precisely why Peter says in even earlier verses that we need people in our lives, to help us stay alert and to think that we can do this alone. Even while the devil is prowling and walking, even the devil has the power to destroy, kill, steal, destroy, the power to devour, to cause terror, to cause fear. Even though that is out in the world in very subtle ways because Satan doesn't run uh, but walks, to think that we can do this life alone without anybody, I would say at best is pretty arrogant, at worst very, very dangerous. We have, the, we have a problem of individualism, and what we need to do is we need to normalize needy. We need to normalize needy. You, you ever hear that? You're being so needy. Oh, don't act so needy. Oh, you know, you're going to turn people off because you're going to think you're, they're needy. I've told, I've told this story before, but I, but I keep on thinking about this story where I was uh, walking alongside a college student and he gets a text from a, a gal that he is interested in, and uh, he, he gets a text in the middle of our conversation. And I was like, oh, man, good job. You're doing great. Now, now text, text her back, you know, ask her out or do or do whatever. And, and he says, oh, I can't do that, Prentice. I was like, what are you talking about? You're interested in this person, and, and she texted you, so, you know, because... They don't call, right? People don't call each other anymore. That's weird. She texted you. So text that person back, and he says, I have to wait three days. I said, what do you mean you have to wait three days? Prentice, that's the rule. That's the game. I have to wait two to three days. Otherwise, I will look like a needy person, and I don't want to look needy, and, and I we can laugh and I laugh, but the reality is we've all been taught that being needy is bad in this society of rugged individualism. And I would argue and submit to you, we need to normalize being needy. It's not a weakness. It's not bad. In a matter of fact, it's being human. As a matter of fact, it's the way that God created us to be in need of one another and particularly of God. And so what Peter does, and we're working kind of we're working backwards, is that because we understand that the world is bigger than of ourselves, that there is an entity called Satan who lies and deceives us, not in big, monstrous, and loud and vivid ways, but in subtle ways that we don't even know. And so Peter says, it would be humble yourselves, it would be arrogant of you to think you can do this alone. So here's what you need to do. And he almost gives this prescription of what our relationships should look like. Now, there's different types of relationships, but Peter specifically talks about this relationship between elders and younger, and those that are younger. And he says this, he says in verse five, in the same way, or sorry, he says in verse one, to the elders among you. I appeal as a fellow elder. So Peter is saying, I'm an elder just like you. And as a witness of Christ's suffering, so those that are walking with Jesus, that has a relationship with Jesus, he says, uh, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being, but being get this, but being examples To the flock. So, not only do we need intimate relationships, friendships with one another that spur each other on, Peter is specifically saying you need older folks in your life. And when I say older, yes, I don't necessarily mean uh, by age, and, and I don't think that Peter is necessarily describing people that are older. Simply by age, uh, when he says you, when he uses the word elder, it's the word presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. Yes, it means elder, but it further means someone that is wise, someone that is mature, someone that is able to lead, someone who has been through life. The reality is, yes, that actually, uh, oftentimes, more often than not, comes from somebody that is older in age. But the important part is. Finding people in your life that has been through it. The joys, the heartaches, the pain, the tears, the laughters, the life stage that you may currently be in or will be in. Peter is saying, find these people in your life and walk along. These people are gold. Walk alongside them. Have them walk alongside you. And what this means is that you will be humble. You are humbling yourself, knowing and believing you can't do this alone, that you actually have, believe it or not, young folks, that you, we, us, uh, we have something to learn from those that have been through life. Call these leaders, call these mentors, call these teachers, coaches, whatever. We need these people in our lives to learn and to grow. And the charge is also, conversely, if you are an elder, a Presbyterian, and again, not just by age, but somebody who is wise, somebody who is mature in their faith, somebody who has been through life, use your life. Use your story. Again, use your joys and heartaches to serve those that are younger, that, those that have not yet experienced what you have experienced in your life. Because the reality is, no matter who you are, you have the capacity to be an elder to somebody. Maybe you are retired, and you can be that mentor, that leader, that figure with someone who is still working or maybe is winding down to their second or third, second half of life. Maybe you are a young professional. You too can be an elder to those maybe in college or maybe in high school. We don't have any high school folks that I know of here, but even high school folks could be an elder, a mentor to those that are in junior high or in elementary whether, Paul or whether Peter talks about an elder or someone who is younger, we all have the capacity to be both. To be somebody who can invest our lives in and walk alongside others and to have somebody do the same for us. That is what humility looks like. To have those kind of intentional relationships, knowing that there's so much out there in the world that can deceive us and knowing that because of that, we just can't do it alone. We need people, not just any other people, but people that are mature, who have been through life, who has been through the heartaches, the joys, who has a mature relationship with Christ to feed into us. We need that. And the reality is we are that whether you know it or not. So we should be intentional about it. Kids are watching. Your coworkers who know that you are a Christian are watching. So it's not just with our words, but it's with our actions that we teach and mentor and lead. Hopefully, intentionally, but whether or not intentionally or not, it's happening. It's happening. And then in verse 5, it says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor in the humble which we already talked about, if you are younger, it is important that you don't just isolate yourself in this echo chamber of your coworkers, of your social media friends, uh, of just your roommates. Now, all these, uh, or, or just your spouse, or just your boyfriend, or girlfriend, or partner, or whatever it is. Now, believe me, these relationships are important, and you must cultivate them. I encourage you, I charge you to cultivate them. And it's also important to find people in your life that will speak truth to you. That will speak reality into your life. That will guide you, that will encourage you. That will even speak hard truths into your life because that relational capital has been built with your intentionality. I remember I there's a mentor here at our that I consider his mentor. He's not here today. He's he's traveling. But I remember having this conversation. This was probably a couple of years ago. And I was actually telling him uh, of an argument I had with my wife, Maria. And and I was just explaining to him, like, can't, the, the, I won't go into the details, but uh, the the situation of the argument that we were in and, and him being my mentor, my friend, someone who has been walking with, my I guess my my hope was that he would say, oh, "Prince, I get it. Yeah. Like, I, what is she thinking? What? What? You know? What? Of course you're right. Because that's what I thought. But his response was the exact opposite. Prince, I, if I was Maria, I, I would be very upset too." Like, what what you did wasn't right, and you should change that. And I remember thinking, that's not what you're supposed to say. You're my mentor. You're my friend. You're supposed to tell me that I was right and she was wrong, and I can go in there and I can tell her my mentor said I was right and you were wrong. That's the way I thought it was going to go down, but it didn't. He said, Prentice, I, I would be just as upset, and here's what I think you should do. We need people that will speak truth into our lives, and we need to receive it. And not just any other truth. It doesn't mean, you know, take every criticism or constructive criticism that comes your way. Who are the people that you have built such a strong relationship with, particularly those that are older, who are mature in their faith, who you trust? Who are these people in their lives that has the complete freedom to speak the, the brutal truth to you? The the green light friends is basically what I call it. You have the green light to just tell me exactly how it is because I will receive it in humility knowing that you're only speaking this because you love me and you want something better for me. Two questions. Who is that in your life and are you that for somebody else? And the answer should be yes and yes. You should have somebody like that. Because of the world that we live in, because of Satan roaming around like a lion, walking slowly. And at the end of the day, everybody, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that God may lift you up in due time. And I love this. I know that there's so much anxiety in our lives because of the little lies, because of the criticism, because of what we see in the news, because of the politics, because of the racial unrest, because of the civil unrest. There's so much anxiety because of this pandemic and and more pandemics and this and that. And these are all real things to worry about. I'm not saying discredit it. But there's something about anxiety that God speaks into. And Peter says this, cast all your anxiety, at the end of the day, cast all your anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. And this word cast, uh, I love I loved this imagery. Peter says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The word cast is like this violent word of throw. Have you ever thrown something just violently like, get out of here like, I don't want this. Or, you know, you know when, when I, you know, clean, this is my method of cleaning, I open up a closet door, I pick up all the mess, and I just throw it in the closet and just shut it. Like, have you ever thrown something? And I love this imagery. Peter is saying, at the end of the day, with all your anxiety, pick up your anxiety and just throw it towards Jesus. And like a childlike faith, it's because Jesus cares for you. I love that. Because with mentors and leaders, and as people that follow, and as people that are following somebody, the whole point of that is to draw closer and closer to Christ. And all of those relationships, Christ is the head, as it says in 1 Corinthians. Because friends are great, therapists are wonderful, counselors are needed, all are wonderful and needed. But there's something to be said to have people in our lives that have relational capital to speak truth into you, godly truth into your lives, and you to speak godly truth into their lives. And the truth is what sets you free, not secrecy, not having skeletons in in the closet because the reality is there's no such thing. Those skeletons will one day come out. It's the truth that will set you free. So speak truth, receive truth from others, from people that are older than you, people that are even younger than you, and be pointed closer to Christ. This is not a new concept, right? If you if you if you work, or maybe in the life stage that you are at, there's workplace mentors, there's school mentors, there's parents mentors, there's you know future vocation mentors. We we have that already. We have internships, we have residencies, in, in medical school, like these kinds of relationships already exist. And what more important relationship? is there in our lives and our relation with God and cultivating that. And that's no different. We need mentors. We need leaders. We need people that we trust to speak truth into our lives and for us to do the same thing. So as I end, I just want to end with that question. We know that the world is bigger than of ourselves. And as smart as we are, we're not outsmart enough to outsmart the, the, the work of Satan in the subtle ways that he works. And so we need people. find those trusted people in our lives, and be that trusted person in someone else's life. And just thinking about this sermon, the staff, we decided to have this like sign-up sheet. Right now, it's just kind of in the works. That's kind of the way I work. It probably drives my staff nuts where it's like, if I have an idea, let's just do it and figure out the rest later. And this is kind of one of those ideas where it's like, hey, if you want to mentor, you can go to our link tree and uh, there's a QR code or you can go to the back of the table and you can just write your name and contact information on a connect card and say, I want to mentor or uh, I want to mentor somebody. So there's two options. I want to be a mentor Or I want one in my life. Again, you can do that online by scanning the QR code for our link tree. You could do that at the connect table, talk to somebody. We don't have all the details figured out. We just want to connect you. And I want you to cultivate that somehow, some way, and we can be a resource for that. But the initial step is to making that step to make it happen. Uh, this might be a shameless plug, or it may not be, but we would, not only do we need people in our hospitality, but we need people in our, uh, our our band, and particularly in our kids' ministry. Would you be a mentor for our kids? We believe in a family-style ministry. Those kids are our kids. We are a family. We should care about You know, this hyper-individualism says, those aren't my kids. I don't have a kid in there. I don't need to volunteer. No, 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 We're a family. This is a family ministry. There are our kids. And so maybe that's a way you can practically invest in the lives of someone younger. So as I invite the worship team back up as we end into a time of reflection. Maybe as we contemplate our lives, maybe it's time to ask for forgiveness. God, I've been trying to do this alone for too long and it just isn't working. Maybe it's that confession that we need in our life. Or, Or God, I've been so inundated with my own life, my own job, even my own family and my own social network and my own friends. I don't have time to invest in somebody younger, Somebody else can do that. Maybe that's a conviction that we are leaving with today, that we've, we've lived too much of that selfish life. God wants to use your story. Let God use your story to help others. Maybe this morning God's convicting you to find a mentor or to mentor somebody. Would you just say yes to that calling? Because we know that life is hard. Life is hard. Life is amazing. It's got joys. It's got laughter. I don't want to leave us in that somberness, but let's just be real. It's all so hard. And how much more life-giving would it be to be able to do it with someone who just cares for you? So as we cast our anxieties on Jesus, because Jesus also cares for us, we can do practical things like find people in our lives that also love us, willing to speak truth to us because we need that. Let's pray. God, thank you that in this world we have you and that you are in full control May we not be afraid or live in fear of the ways that Satan works in our lives. But may we live in confidence that you have defeated sin and death. You have conquered evil on the cross. And you have resurrected to give us new life. And not just any life, but life to its abundance. But God, that's not the end of the story. That is in end of the story, but that doesn't mean we stop there. It means that we cultivate relationships. Find Christian community. Find people to invest in. Find people that will invest in us to draw us even closer and closer to the cross of victory. Give us conviction this morning, whether it's asking for forgiveness for our arrogance, whether it's the the ability to be humble, acknowledging our own weakness, Or names that we need to reach out to and just check in on. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's end uh, with worship.